The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 3. This message was given during the evening service on July 10, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 3. There are four marks, so that sermon title will end when I finish the fourth mark. The four marks are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, if you follow with it, where it says, In this you greatly rejoice. That's not one of the marks. Um, mark number one, even though now for a little while. Mark number two in verse six, if necessary. Mark number three, you have been distressed. Mark number four, by various trials. We're still in the first mark, even though now for a little while, if necessary, even though now for a little while. Um, as your note sheet says, the American way, legit to quit. It is legit to quit. Um, I've had people tell me over the years, the last couple of years, that this plague is terrible. It's caused Americans to quit their jobs like crazy. Well, I got a piece of information for you that's a fact. If you think the plague caused all the job quitting in this nation, you and I are wrong. Toby Graham wrote an article the, about six months before the plague began in 2019. He wrote the article for KPA Consulting, a business consulting firm, and it was published in a wider venue of readership. And Toby Graham said this six months before the plague started. Quote, winners never quit and quitters never win. I don't know about you, but I had that drilled into my head by multiple parents, teachers, and coaches when I was a kid. When I grew up, quitting was seen as cowardly and unsportsmanlike. It was always better to persevere at something, even if you were undeniably terrible at it, than to give up and throw in the towel. Clearly, times have changed. This is pre-COVID. It's now officially legit to quit. In 2018, the quit rate in the United States hit a 17-year high. Did you hear that? Two years before the plague. This country was already crashing and burning before the plague ever hit. And he's referring to jobs, quitting jobs. 2018, the quit rate in the United States hit a 17-year high with an average of approximately 3.5 million people voluntarily leaving their jobs every single month. And that number has just risen exponentially since then. For perspective, Toby says, that would be like the entire population of Los Angeles deciding to give their two-week notice at the same time every single month, end quote. So let's not blame the plague. What did the plague do? It just pushed Americans faster in the direction they've been going for years. Legit to quit. Guess what the opposite word would be for endurance? Quitting. Got to really say it loud. Remember? Fans, voices, that way. Yeah, so kind of get the connection here. 
We are being asked by God to endure in an entire culture that believes that quitting is righteous and virtuous. But having quitting on the mind isn't just in the area of job markets. It's in all major other areas. Just let me give you some of them in and out of the church. Marriage quitting. Remember they used to call it the uh, seven-year itch to get a divorce? Remember that? It was the seven-year itch? Well, now 20% of marriages in America end in the first five years. And for one of the first times in American history, age is irrelevant as far as divorce. 80-year-olds are divorcing their spouses after 50 years just as much as young people after a year. Quitting. Church closings. Again, before the plague, Lifeway study seven, eight months before the plague pointed to the hastening of church closures in 2019. In fact, going back five years earlier to 2014, it was found that there were 3,700 church closures um, a year. Now, and this is just in, in, in all Protestant churches. But now that is, just two years later, it was up to 4,500. And that number's just gone through the roof up until this year. How about Christians quitting church? Well, a recent report just a couple months ago this year released by American Enterprise Institute shows, however, that despite the proven benefits of belonging to a faith community, Americans are increasingly leaving organized religion with each subsequent generation and the majority aren't even coming back ever. Quitting and never coming back. The latest poll on atheism, 43% of Americans say there may be a God, but even if there is, he's totally irrelevant. 43% of Americans, God is totally irrelevant. You can see that on the news and on TV, right? God is totally irrelevant. This is our society. Quit, quit, quit. How about life quitting? The dark side of this quitting is suicide. On average, adjusted for age, the annual suicide rate increased 30% from the year 2000 to the year 2020. In 2018, 4.2 people per 100,000 citizens died by suicide, the highest rate recorded in more than 30 years. How about military and political quitting? Well, we all remember the infamous pullout on Vietnam, right? Where we quit Vietnam when the going was tough. Well, how about Afghanistan last year, huh? Just pull up and leave. We've had enough. We can't do this anymore. I read a recent um, article a couple of weeks ago coming out of Germany. It was an op-ed piece, and it was uh, written by a uh, person in Germany who's astute about American situations in comparison to Europe. And to paraphrase, basically he said, hey, Europeans, hello. You better not trust the United States as a partner for defense against the Ukraine or anyone else. Why? The United States is a quitting nation. I don't find American citizens very noble. I don't find the citizens of my country individuals that I can, by and large, look up to. Lazy, pagan, secularized, vice-ridden, Gripers, whiners, complainers. Yes, I'm complaining about their complaining. I realize that. And ad infinitum. 
Trump gets in, toss him out. Now they're saying we're going to toss Biden out. He's no good. Quit. Quit. We need somebody new. And along comes the Bible. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. Hmm. Suffering. Trials. No wonder the Christian message isn't bought. And so Christianity, evangelicalism, comes along and says, whatever you do, when you witness to, a, when you witness to an American citizen, don't tell them they're going to suffer for the faith. That'll just kill that evangelism right then and there. Great. So now we need to leave out one of the great eight wills of God, which is to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Don't tell them. Tell them their life will be wonderful and have peace and plenty. We don't want to lose that convert. Suffering, enduring, what's that? Forget that. So, as with all things in evangelicalism, wherever the culture goes, so go believers in the church. We quit our jobs like them. We quit our churches like them. We quit our neighborhoods like they do. We quit our marriages like them. We quit standing for truth. If the culture tells us to stop, culture hates suffering, we do too. The culture loves comfort, we do too. This is not a very popular message here. I scanned down through dozens and dozens of Bible church websites across the country this past week, just arbitrarily, looking at the sermons, if there were any sermons on. And what I'm also finding, by the way, is uh, preaching is being dumped off of Christian church websites. I mean, it's growing. We don't want anyone to know what we teach or it's not that important. I mean, you can go 20 years ago when you know it was just beginning to be on the internet, it was like, get those sermons out, right? Now it's like, well... In fact, you drop your menu item down on a basic church, okay? It's got those little four bars there you got to look for in the homepage of a Bible-believing church, those four white little bars. So you hit that thing and down drops a menu. Okay, who we are, why we love you, our place, our facility, um, ministry for youth, ministry for children. We have uplifting music. Click on that for music. Hmm. Oh, wait, wait. Sermons. Sermons. Wait. Oh, I got a sub-menu that one. Uh, ministries of the church, nursery, youth, music, outreach, picnics, calendar, sermons. Punch that. Oh, there's, there's some sermons. The one I just looked at yesterday. There's, oh, oh, last sermon put on this website, February 2021. I guess they haven't updated that. And then if you just look at some of the topics of the sermons, you think there are any that are doing crazy stuff like I'm doing? The marks of super joy suffering. Yeah. you get one of those bought at a megachurch, wouldn't you? Life is full of suffering. I think it's practical. And I tend to want to whine and be comfortable, so I need this. I guess other Christians aren't too interested in that. Let's look at the outline. 
Christians are to be joyful despite trials. Look at how long that outline is. Oh my goodness. All the way down the page. Letter A, the Christian joy, Christian's joy is supposed to be connected to his salvation, not good times. In this you greatly rejoice, as verse 6 says. And perspective number, number one that we finished on joy. Joy is super confidence in our protected salvation and protecting Savior. No matter what happens, the Lord is in control. Amen? It's okay. It's not your fault. I just can't hear you. You really need to subtitle you. You should all have like a little TV screen in front of your head. Then when you say something, it would come out in big white subtitles. So I could, I could read that all there. So. Letter B, Christian joy is to operate on the battlefield of suffering. Oh my goodness, battlefield. I came to Christ so that he would take care of all my problems. What are you talking about? I'm sorry. I feel so guilty telling you what the Bible says. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, he'd been distressed by various trials continuously. And that's what brings us to our four marks of suffering. And the first one, we're buried in. Christian suffering is temporary. Hey, praise the Lord. It's only going to last till 7 o'clock. That's not what temporary means. So track down through the points underneath that, under mark number one. Even though now, now equals suffering can happen at any time. We learned that. You mean I have to expect suffering that's so negative? Well, hey, that's what the Christian life is. The first part of the gospel, the first word of the gospel is extremely negative. What's the first word of the gospel? Repent. Very good, you negative fellow over here. You need some counseling, 20 bucks an hour. I'll give you a discount. Get that repentance negativism out of you. Yeah, well, hey, that's what this means. Now means you have to live in the now, and at any moment you could have suffering. Not the fatalism of, oh, death always comes in threes. That's pagan. I don't want to hear the phone ring. It's always bad news. That's pagan. We just live in the expectation that we're living in a sinful world and that's going to bring bad stuff. So as number one says under Mark number one, tomorrow will take care of itself. And then in verse six, for a little while, a little more tricky to try to figure out what that means. Most likely it's referring to the duration of each trial not in comparison to your comfort, but in comparison to eternity. That's what he's saying, even though now for a little while. Peter's not thinking, well, let's put him on a scale. You had three weeks of comfort. Now you got just a little while of suffering. That's good. Three weeks comfort, a little while. Of... He's not comparing that to that. He's comparing it to eternity. Because that's what he was talking about in verses 4 and 5. Heaven. Number three, so the reality is that we really do not know how long any given trial will last when we encounter them. <laughs> that too is just so negative. Are you mean to tell me, what's the matter with this thing? Do you mean to tell me, John, that uh, I'm never going to know how long a trial is going to last? I mean, seriously? Yeah. You mean I have to have faith every day in the midst of my suffering? Hmm. Number four, so we need to buckle up. Trials in our lives will last a little while, but God isn't telling us the duration of each trial, how long it will last. So when you get suffering in your life, and this is predominantly in reference to your faith, he's not telling you and I when it's going to end. How do we like them apples? So I guess we have no choice but to trust Christ for his control is... Underneath that, number one, under point four, we have to trust him for the control of the duration of it. It all comes back to faith. God knows what he's doing. He's not falling asleep while you've been suffering. 
Now we're rumbling up. We're rumbling up to that little question. Remember I alluded to it? There was a little magic question that tells us instantly whether we think it's good and okay to suffer for Christ. There's a two-word question that's coming up soon. And if you utter this two-word question to God ever, that reveals everything you need to know about endurance and suffering in your life. A two-word question. Amazing. So number two, at the very bottom, since we have no control over the types of suffering we face in this life, nor the length of time that suffering will plague us, then we need two tools to get us through the suffering. Two tools. The one here in this text, I filled it in for you, is super joy. Aligaste, that's what uh, greatly rejoice. One word in the Greek there in verse 6, it means super joy. And secondly is spiritual endurance, and that's going to take us to 1 Corinthians 10. Turn over there as we leave this text for this evening. And so you need the tool of endurance to get us, to get you and I through suffering. The tool of endurance is vital with joy to get you and I through suffering. Are you hearing me repeat that over and over again? All right, we're going to start with a quick definition, then we're going to get down into it more detailed. What does endurance mean? The quick version is remain under. That's what endurance means. God wants us to have joy and remain under suffering. Two-word question. How long? There it is. You just uttered it. You all thought it. How long do I have to remain under? And if you ever say that, or that's part of your Christian vocabulary, you hate endurance and absolutely want no suffering. Oh, that's not fair, John. Why's it wrong to ask how long? Okay, well, let's switch to some other virtues. And endurance is a virtue, by the way. It is a righteous virtue, according to James 1. It is not legit to quit in a Christian life. But just for the sake of argument, let's just at random choose another virtue. Um, you're tempted with sin, and the ninth fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You need self-control in order to have victory over lustful temptations. And should we then utter how long? I mean, how long do I have to remain with self-control? When can I stop self-control so I can get back to lusting? That's what we ask, right? We ask how long. Or let's take another virtue. Holy, separated unto the Lord. Holiness, what a great virtue. So in counseling, you're sitting there and I'm saying, you need to stop being so worldly. And God would say you need to be holy. And the counselor says back to me, holy, well, how long do I have to do that? When can I go back to being worldly? You mean I've got to be holy every day of my life? The reason we never say how long self-control, how long loving, how long holy, is because we consider them righteous virtues. Guess what we think endurance is? 
That's what we think endurance is. It's not righteous. It's agony. It's disgusting. I don't want it. So then when we come along and we're suffering and God allows us to partake of righteous endurance, we blow the whole game and we admit our hearts and expose it to everyone and to God when we utter those two words. How long? Write it down. When you say, how long must I suffer with this trial, you reject endurance as a righteous virtue. You would never say that about self-control, kindness, faith, love, mercy, gentleness. How long do I have to be merciful? When can I go back to church to being hateful? Are you getting it? The philosophy of suffering of our entire life is revealed by that two-word question. We're constantly before the Lord saying, oh, long. And he's looking down from heaven and saying, that's a virtue to endure. To remain under suffering is a virtue. Hello. James 1. Yeah, but I don't like it. Well, too bad. There's a lot of things about virtues in the Bible I don't like. I mean, let's just go back to that ninth fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It's enjoyable to lust. There's nothing unenjoyable about that until after I lust and I am then feeling guilt and misery, right? Self-control. In strengthening, as we know. The only person who wouldn't want that virtue is a total godless rebel. Forget about self-control. Faith. Growing faith. When can I go back to trusting myself? We don't see this as a virtue. This is like one of those bad virtues. Verse 3, James 1, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Oh, how long do I have to remain under? How long? I can't take this. Oh, you can't take verse 4? And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So endurance produces perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You don't want that? Oh, okay. I got it. How long do I have to remain under this? Because I don't want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to go back to being imperfect and complete and having everything. This is a little lesson in how we live under lies. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. We think, I've run into Christians and counseling, you think that's actually, actually a righteous response. Well, well... Dear believer, you know, you're suffering right now for the faith. And I'll say to them, and, and, and you need to endure by the grace of God. And all of a sudden, their lips will, will start quivering. Tears will stream down the face. I have to endure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to endure. I have to have that righteous virtue of endurance. Yeah, yeah, you, you kind of you do. How long? I can't take this anymore. What a blasphemous statement that is to a holy God who means endurance to mature us in the faith. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. So, none of you have ever said how long, right? And I haven't either. That one's stuck in my throat, and I don't need my esophagus stretched yet. 
Grasping spiritual endurance, number five in your note sheet on the back. Grasping that horrible poisonous antibiotic. Endurance. Remaining under suffering that we all have to do. Yes, I want to grasp it. Study it. Feast on endurance. Really? I don't think so. And so we land in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And there's actually a back door out on this verse if you want to get rid of endurance, by the way. It's coming up in this verse. If you want to get rid of that endurance and you really, I don't care what it does for me spiritually, I want it out. I've got a back door right here. It's coming. I will eisegete this text right out the window into eternal hell, but I will still have my back door. Eisegete means to read into the text what I want, as opposed to exegesis, where we read out of the text the true meaning. In case you thought I mispronounced the word. It's coming up. This is, this is for every carnal believer. Watch. No temptation is overtaking you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's common to man. God's faithful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Oh, wonderful. But with the temptation will provide. The way of escape! I found it! The escape out of suffering. Now I don't need to endure. I just pray, Jesus, give me an escape. I want out from under this suffering. Just give me an escape. But wait a minute. What comes next? So that you will be, be able to endure it. What? Let me clean these glasses. Anybody got an exacto knife? I want to cut that out of there so that you will be able to endure it. Wait, wait, it says escape, endure, escape, endure, escape, endure, remain under, escape. Hmm. Escape, endure, escape, endure. I'll pick escape. Now, what does he mean by no temptation? Let's start back at the beginning of verse 13. In your note sheet, number one, no temptation is perasmas. It could mean in one context temptation or an elicitation to sin or it could be a trial or a test. The same word is used for both as I've taught you already. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. So the one word can mean temptation or test as your note sheet says. Context, write it down. Context determines whether it's temptation or test or trial. Now, context means I've got to go back and I have to check some things out to know which one this is referring to. Are you with me on this? It says temptation. That's an arbitrary interpretive decision the New American Standard people made, and I think it's dead wrong. In fact, almost every translation uses the word temptation. I'm selling my soul out on the word test or trial instead, and I will hopefully show you over the next 16 weeks why that's the case. Anyways, go back to verse 1. Don't be ignorant fools. That's a nice way of how Paul says it in verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. That's not good when Paul says you're unaware. You're basically an ignoramus and it's no good. But he's calling them brethren, so he still thinks they're saved. In verse 1, we're trying to figure out the context of that word temptation. So that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink and they all were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Jesus Christ. Amen! Nice and positive. Oops, turns a dark corner in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. I would put to you that that's true today. Most believers, God grieves over. 
Most of us, God's not well pleased with. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, why did that happen? Verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not what? Lust. There it is. Craving evil things. Crave is one of the words for lust. As they also crave. So lust is the foundation of all sin that we commit. And it pops up as that nasty enemy of Israel right in verse 6. This is recapping back to Numbers 11. That's that whole story about the manna versus the quail. Remember that one? They were having a quail of a time. Now he itemizes under the broad category of lust in verse 6 specifics. Four specific sins they committed. Number one, do not be idolaters. So the Israelites back in number 11 were idolaters. An idolater is the final stage of rebellion for a believer that is capable of. So let me just remind you, there are four stages of sin that we play with. The first one is we sin. If we don't deal with that sin, it becomes a habit, habitual. If we don't repent of the habit, it becomes an enslavement. Very good. And number four is idolatry. Just a little teeny valley between enslavement and idolatry. When I'm enslaved to sin, and it's all itemized in what it means in, in uh, Romans 6, the essence of enslavement is... Well, think of the word. To be enslaved means you have another master. If you're enslaved to sin, what's mastering you? Sin. So the enslaved Christian is one mastered by habitual sin to the point where they can't seem to ever have victory or stop themselves, and they're living in despair. So this is the attitude of one enslaved as a believer. I can't stop this. This is the hope I've tried and tried. Grace living isn't trying, it's faith, but be that as it may. I've tried, I've tried. Why isn't God helping me? In the little valley that they cross, if they don't repent of that, up the other side of the valley wall into idolatry is this. I kind of like this. I just discovered I'm free in Christ. What was I crying about? That's idolatry. And I worship my sin, and don't you tell me what to do. I was reading about good King Asa, Asa this morning. Remember when he was uh, confronted about, I think it was Asa, one of those kings in there. He was confronted about his sin. He got really angry. Yeah, he was an idolater. He was such a good king, and then he just crashed and burned. Because over time, we find that as these kings age, over time as believers, they then backslide. Ding, 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 ding. Getting older as a Christian is not just bad about the aches and pains. It tends to harden and make us angry. So that's sin number one. Number two, verse eight. The idolatry led them to revel in immorality. That's sexual immorality. And God was really wiping them out at this point. 23,000 fell in one day. And so this is a mixing of stories, by the way. Numbers 11, Exodus 32, Numbers 25. And what, what this is is like a shopping mall of Israel's major sins and different stories all intersecting chapter 10, okay? So the Spirit of God through Paul is giving the Corinthians a lesson in how Israel fell with all these cravings. 
Number three, verse nine, testing the Lord. We talked about that. Ghost Town Bible Church last Sunday morning to test the Lord. Psalm 106, we were looking back at that memory lane down, going down memory lane on that one to test the Lord. Basically, to try the Lord means, God, I want this. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the word says. Please give it to me. I want you to give me my evil lust, which is a temptation or a trial to get God to okay our sin. That's what testing the Lord does. And then number four is verse 10, nor what? Grumble. It's an onomatopoeic word. What that means is the Greek word sounds like the action. It sounds like a grumbling. I wrote the word down here, but I wrote it down when I was 1.25. And now I need 1.7. That was a real mistake. That's glasses, strength, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, it sounds like, kind of like grumble. That's what an onomatopoeic word is. And they were destroyed by the destroyer for grumbling. You think that they'd get wiped out for the idolatry and for the immorality and for testing God, but come on, grumbling? Who has done that? Back to the example, verse 11. They were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages come. What were they grumbling about? See, the last one is grumbling. And I am of the perspective that that is the one that is triggering the comment in verse 13. The others is just gross immorality, idolatry, sexual immorality, trying, but the, the one that wins the day here is grumbling. And it says, now these things happen to them as an example. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Grumbling is complaining about God's will. That's what it is. Is idolatry God's will? No. Is sexual immorality God's will? No. Is testing the Lord God's will? No. So those are just, this is evil, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do idolatry, and I'm going to commit sexual immorality, and I'm going to test God. Everything, all nine innings of that ball game, of each one of those three, is absolutely corrupt. We get to grumbling. This is grumbling about righteousness. Wow. They didn't like the fact that they had to eat what? Manna. What did they want? Meat. Meat isn't wrong. Unless I'm a food law legalist. That's another series. But meat isn't wrong. It wasn't like they were asking for immorality in verse 8 or they, wanted, they were begging God, please let me test you, Lord. They're just asking for meat. And they were suffering at the hands of God because he didn't give them what they wanted. Hmm. They were grumbling over suffering under God's will. And that's what brings us back to the telephone ringing. Hello. Checks in the mail. Is that yours? Is that a new ringer? Huh? It's a new ringer? Oh, I haven't heard that one before. Okay. 
Sounds like a new ringer to me. I can't hear a word she's saying. I guess that's good. Now we come to verse 13. No temptation has overcome you. Now, Corinthians, they, they know idolatry is wrong, as corrupt as they were. They, they knew that they should not act immoral, immorally. Paul's confronted that repeatedly. Uh, testing God, that's a vile sin that's innately wicked. But this is complaining to have to do God's will, which includes deprivation and suffering. God purposely only gave him manna and didn't give him meat. It was easy for him to give him meat, right? Because he just dropped the quail on, right? But he chose to not do that. His will means deprivation. And that's what brings us to no temptation has overtaken you. The temptation is actually a test. A test that comes upon us, that tempts us, if we let it, to grumble about suffering in life. So when you and I use that magic two words, how long, you and I are in verse 10, grumbling about the hardship of God's will. They weren't grumbling because God did something bad to them. Was manna bad? They just didn't want to eat it permanently. They wanted a diet change, right? What's wrong with that? Well, what happened to them when they stuck it in their mouths and took a bite? Plague wiped them out. It wasn't the meat that was intrinsically wrong. I read some crazy jamulk years ago on that story. See, just God means us for only to eat plants, not animals. It was wrong for them to eat and murder birds. Wow. Whew. That's like so twisted. They were rebelling against the provision that God had made. His provision was absolutely sufficient. And even in the midst of our suffering, he meets our needs always. We are not to ask how long. That is grumbling. All right, well, I won't ask how long. I'll just quit. If I have it within my power to get out from under the suffering, I'll just do it. No, no, the word is remain under. You're to just remain under it. Well, how long? See, it just, it just spews out of us. We can't help it. You remain under it until God calls it quits. So as long as the manna kept falling, what should they have rejoiced in and stopped grumbling and eaten? The manna. It went from a blessing where they made all sorts of meals with it to they were absolutely sick of it and it disgusted them and they didn't even want it anymore. They started by hoarding all the manna and then it got rotten and they were only supposed to make provision for a day so that they would trust the Lord. And by the end of it, they didn't even want to collect any of it. They just sat crying in their tents and weeping. Oh, if, if we only had the wonderful fruit and vegetables from Egypt and if only we had some meat to eat. Boom. So this is a test. Paul's not talking to us in verse 13 about when you're tempted to sin horrible sins, you need to endure those sins and just remain under those sins and keep sinning. Do you think God is really saying at the end of verse 13 that he wants you to remain under an elicitation to do evil? I thought we were supposed to run from sin and temptation. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does God's word say, when you are tempted, remain under. Okay, I'll leave the TV on. God said, 
endure temptation. You see how wicked that translation is? You're to, with the temptation, be able to endure it? I'm to endure an elicitation to evil? Seriously? Wow, that's just a license to sin for me. Johnny boy right here. Oh, my old nature would really like that one. Oh, yeah. God said it in his word. When I'm tempted to sin, I need to just remain underneath that temptation and let it ride. This is grumbling over God's will, hating suffering. This is perfect for us in First Peter 1.6. This fits right in. Endurance is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing to remain under suffering that's God's will. It is not a wonderful thing to remain under elicitations to do evil. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he should have just what? Remained under. Yeah, baby. No. What did he do? I spent the whole last part of this sermon trying to convince you to cross off the word temptation forever in that verse and write the word trial of suffering instead. And that we remain under. And how long is none of your business and mine? Whose business is that? And if we in verse 13 truly believe that God is faithful, who will not let you be tried under suffering longer than the God-given capacity and power to endure it, then we can rest under the trial and let it ride for as long as he determines, even if the rest of my life. I think that's a little better understanding. Well, in conclusion, someone could say, well, yeah, but I'm still looking at that word escape, and I really like that word escape, and that's God's word, and God's word says that, so I want an escape. All right, we'll deal with that next Sunday night. And some of these other terms that we need to define. We just got to point number five, number one, at the top of your note sheet. Now we'll go back through this a little more slowly, now that I've given you the context under number one, and we'll start to try to really zone in on this to see how can I endure suffering without ever choosing myself to quit it. That's what we're learning here. In any field of suffering, you are to remain under it until God calls it quits. Does that mean marriage? Does that mean church? Could that mean job? Could that mean horrible place we're living? Could that mean physical ailments that aren't being cured? Could that really mean that? Yeah. Because endurance is righteous and quitting is moral failure. Every single time. If it's suffering for righteousness sake and it's suffering as part of your growth in Christ. Suffering for sin is not moral to quit on that. It's righteous to quit on that. 
Father, this is something that is so difficult because we just spew it out at you continuously. How long, how long, how long, how long? This would, this would solve almost all the major problems in the American church today. The flight of Christians out of bad areas, leaving cities to Satan. If Christians endured under bad living conditions in cities and didn't move to nice suburbia, Lord, we'd have more churches in the cities, more light-bearing, more righteousness. If Christians didn't quit their jobs when they suffered under the hands of unsaved people, but were light-bearing testimonies in the midst of brutal, unjust behavior at work, how powerful that would be. There would be no divorce or remarriage in the Christian church today. It's the same percentage almost exactly as unbelievers because when the going gets tough, we comfort-oriented how long Christians, Lord, dump our spouses as well. Remain under, endure. That's why your word doesn't teach there are grounds for divorce or remarriage. You'd be teaching us that it's all right under certain contexts to quit. When everything in your word says remain under suffering, even if the marriage is suffering, you remain under. Churches. <laughs> How stable our churches would be with all the hundreds that quit here because they didn't like whatever it was, the music, the pews, the heat, the no parking, the sinners that are in the church, the lack of ministries, whatever it is. We had Christians, Lord, that didn't quit on our church and endured in our little fellowship. We'd be packed out today. Rather than fighting for our life, quitting destroys everything. The context and location of where your will is for our lives, it destroys our marriages, it destroys our jobs and our testimony there, and it destroys our churches. And quitting has already wrecked this country thoroughly. Lord, maybe the best thing I can say tonight, because we're such children when it comes to suffering, all of us are, is may we see worse than a four-letter swear word coming out of our mouths, worse than any of those most putrid swear words we could utter, may we see the two words, one suffering, how long, as being the worst profanity we can ever blasphemously utter into your holy and hallowed throne of heaven in prayer. And may we forever dump the how long into your faithful hands and leave the duration of suffering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.